Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Hello, this is The Guardian's Brexit Means podcast, diving deep into the ever murkier waters of Brexit so you don't have to for more than three thrilling years now, and frankly, all the funkier for it. So, what's happened since last we spoke? Well, to nobody's surprise, Boris Johnson's Brexit bill has sailed through the Commons with a large majority and is now making its stately way through the Lords. Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen have had their first talk about the talks about Britain's future relationship with the European Union which were reportedly good-natured and positive, with all involved, eager to dial down the passion after the excitements of the past few months. But, and it's a big but, for all the bonhomie, the fault lines were plain for all to see. The next 11 months are really not going to be plain sailing, as we will discuss. And to underline that point, hints of just a few of the problems that lie in store came thick and fast. MEPs in Brussels expressed grave concern about the UK government's attitude to the 3.3 million EU citizens in Britain. The UK was accused of acting like a bunch of cowboys over deliberate violations and abuse of the Schengen Information Database System. So, with less than three weeks to go before the UK almost certainly leaves the EU, what's next? What changes will January the 31st actually bring? Will Boris Johnson stick to his promise not to extend the transition period? And what are the consequences of that for the kind of deal that might be done? Will he abide by his pledge not to align the UK with EU rules and standards? And what are the consequences of that for the UK economy? Will the EU continue to insist on that level playing field that we keep hearing about? And what are the consequences of that for the Prime Minister's Brexit plans? With me to answer these and a host of other equally important questions are three people better qualified than most to address them. Namely, in the studio, Jonathan Liss, Deputy Director of British Influence, and Georgina Wright of the Institute for Government. And on the line from Strasbourg, The Guardian's very own Jennifer Rankin. Jonathan, let's start with you, if I may. We say we're going to be out on the 31st of January. We are, aren't we? I mean, the Brexit bill's passage through both Houses of Parliament really is a foregone conclusion where the majority Johnson's got now. There isn't going to be any serious challenge to it, is there? Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary, isn't it? Thinking just a, a couple of months ago when everything was on this sort of knife edge, soap opera style, will they, won't they? And all of the oxygen has been sucked out of that drama, if you like, because we know, well, yes, yes, they will. <laughs> and so you saw last week uh, a succession of amendments, very, very valuable amendments on child refugees, workers' rights, Erasmus, just come and go. The media barely paid it any attention whatsoever. It's so different from the last three years of Brexit debate. And that is going to be the, the most operandi from now on, you know, that so Johnson can basically do whatever he likes. And that, I mean, we'll, we'll come back to this in the discussion, but obviously in terms of the Brexit bill itself, we're already seeing the consequences of Johnson's new power in the sense that he had made an agreement with people like Caroline Flint, for example, in the last parliament to include workers' rights. That's now gone. Uh, the government's saying that they'll put it onto a new bill, but, you know, we didn't, they don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously people in Blythe Valley and North 
West Durham and other seats who lent their votes, the Conservatives might not be particularly pleased um, with the notion of workers' rights going. But again, there's no accountability anymore. And so we are seeing a much harder uh, Brexit bill. We assume that the European Parliament will pass that, notwithstanding the some of the, uh, the reservations mm. that have been made in Brussels. But yes, uh, we are absolutely leaving on the 31st of January mm. and that is going to be a heartbreaking occasion for millions of people. And this talk of national celebration is just complete fantasy. So then, yes, with that under our belt, Jennifer, we can basically assume then that Brexit really is now a matter of days away. The ratification by the European Parliament, as Jonathan said, set for the end of January the 29th, I believe. Celebrations or wakes aside, run us through a little bit what exactly will happen on at 11pm UK time on the 31st, midnight Brussels time. What changes, what doesn't change? It's the point of no return, isn't it? The official moment of Brexit, but people might not notice very much for a while. Well, I think that's exactly it. It is the point of no return when out means out and there is no going back after 11 o'clock on the 31st of January. But as you say, I think nothing will will change very much in in the short term and uh, and we won't really notice any great changes. The UK will remain part of the EU single market and customs union. People will still be able to have, um, you know, the, the right to travel to other EU member states without being troubled by any sort of demands to to show extra documentation. But nonetheless, I think it will feel very different, uh, especially in Brussels. And I think one big change, which is often really underplayed in the UK, is the fact that there would be no British representation in any of the EU decision-making bodies. So you won't have British ministers at the table, you won't have MEPs, none of these um, British representatives will be involved in the EU lawmaking process. So I think for Brussels watchers that's going to be a big change, but I'm not sure if that's really going to resonate, or in fact I don't think it will resonate very much in the UK given the fact that the whole sort of EU lawmaking process was largely ignored anyway for, for, yes. for decades. And and in certain aspects the, the, the UK will still be involved in the less sort of formal structures. I mean, the, the UK uh, has been working with France and Germany on the uh, on the Iran crisis in the Middle East in the in the last few days. And I think those sort of more informal contacts, clearly they will they will continue, but the UK will no longer be part of that formal EU architecture when it comes to foreign policy. So a lot will, a, a huge amount will change on the 31st of January, but in a sense, uh, the big changes will only really happen at the end of uh, 2020. Mm. And are there sad faces in Brussels? Definitely. People are really sad about and have always been sad about Brexit. And, and I've heard time and time again, you know, no, we're not planning a celebration. I think all the celebrations will be on the other side of the channel. People are actually thinking quite hard at the moment at how to mark this day. They, do, I mean, they, I think they do, don't want to ignore it and just mm. let it slip under the carpet, but neither do they want to be seen celebrating what for, what for I think for everyone in the EU is seen as a, as a sad day and, and a failure. Mm. All right, looking forward, um, Georgina, very interesting, this this first meeting between the British Prime Minister and the new President of the European Commission. Just give us your take, if you would, on what came out of that. I mean, it was very striking. Well, there's plenty of good cheer and sort of polished optics and optimism and all that sort of stuff. But there was also a, a very interesting speech at the London School of Economics that Ursula von der Leyen gave just before it. So, what, I mean, what, what did you make of her day in London? I mean... 
at this point, the UK hasn't left yet. Um, and so I think the EU um, were very clear. There were three messages they wanted to convey and very early on before these negotiations on trade and security begin. One is that the EU wants a good deal, so it will put its best foot forward, that you know, if it's to address joint challenges going forward, like climate change, tackling terrorism, all of that stuff. But two, time is really, really short. You know, It's not only about negotiating an agreement, finding a compromise, it's about passing that deal. Um, There are obstacles and complications. And third, like the UK, the EU would push very, very hard to safeguard its own interests. And I think it was really important for the EU to put those messages Mm. forward and in the UK as well. Be upfront and transparent from the start that, yes, we will try as hard as we can, but that it will be challenging. Mm. Okay, yeah. And we'll look at some of those obstacles later in the podcast. Jonathan, just your take on the sort of the UK side of things, really. I mean, the same kind of thing, really. I mean, lots of warm words about common ground on the climate crisis and security and human rights and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, an absolute insistence on non-alignment with EU rules, this push for a kind of fast Canada-style free trade agreement, absolutely no question at all of any extension to the transition period. I mean, it, it struck me at least that, I mean, Johnson was basically setting out his red lines and we've been there before, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, the difference was that before he didn't have a parliamentary majority and now he has. And the other thing is that he's taken away for MPs' rights in the in the withdrawal bill. Um, so MPs will no longer have any right to either approve the negotiating mandate or to request an extension to that transition period. So really, this Brexit is certainly taking back control, but not in the way we expected. It's taking back control for one man only. And I, I just add to what Georgie was saying about um, von der Leyen. It seemed to me the main thing is this extraordinary refrain, which we've been hearing for four years, which is cakeism. It's not not going to be accepted. Mm. It's extraordinary that we still haven't learned the basic lessons, which is that the EU dictates the red lines and we either obey them or we fall off the edge of a cliff. And so, you know, when she was saying every choice has a consequence, every decision um, has a trade-off. If you don't have free movement to people, you're not going to get free mm. movement of uh, goods and services. Those messages have been made repeatedly mm. since 2016 and they have still not sunk through. And so what we're seeing now is a Brexit is actually beginning for the first time because really what we've just been doing for the last three years is dealing with a divorce and now actually some of the things that we were talking about during the referendum campaign are finally going to come and into the... Really into play. Absolutely. Yeah. So those hurdles, those obstacles, Jennifer, that are going to have to be cleared over the next few months. I mean, the first big one, obviously, is, as, as Georgina mentioned, is this question of timing isn't it? Can you just talk us through the sort of the process and and its implications for the timing? So first of all, you know, the negotiating positions have to be sort of drawn up and published, don't they? Um, And then that's at the beginning of the process. At the end of the process, there's obviously a certain amount of time needed for ratification. Just just remind us of of what those necessary steps are. And I mean, if I'm right, that's basically going to leave us with something like sort of six or seven months of actual negotiating time, isn't it? Yeah, so I make it, I make it around eight, but I think it's still a bit hazy at the moment, and the time is really short, and it's it's shorter than than the headline. We we're, we're so used to talking now about the eleven mm. month transition period, but actually that does that does cut down a lot shorter, sort of six, seven, eight months once we get into the into the detail. Because first of all, 
the EU will have to agree a mandate for the future talks. And they will not do that until the end of February, which is when EU affairs ministers will meet in Brussels for one of their regular gatherings. And they will rubber stamp the the mandate for Michel Barnier and his team to then take forward those talks. That's not scheduled to happen until around the 23rd of February. So then we get into the talks on the future agreement. But already people are saying, well, maybe these will need to be wrapped up by October, November, in order to allow for the European Parliament for to have its say and to and to then vote on that agreement. But there is a sort of view that in any case, even if it is a mixed agreement, you can have some provisional application and then you can defer those votes for a later stage. So they that, that issue doesn't go away, but it can at least be deferred. But that's all still to be discuss, decided in the negotiations. And so and between the sort of beginning and end points, we'll have the big debate and probably a big row in the middle about whether to extend the the talks or not. And of course, there's that deadline um, by the 1st of July, the UK will have had to have made its request for uh, an extension of the transition period and got that agreed with the EU. Of course, Boris Johnson is insisting he doesn't want to extend the transition period. And uh, and people are taking that very seriously in Brussels. They, they're taking him at his word. But then again, in a few months' time, things, things could, could very, well change. Absolutely. Um, yes. Now, that's interesting. Jo- I mean, Georgina Island particularly has been quite blunt recently uh, in recent days saying that you know just because Johnson as he has um, we should remind listeners has put into UK law this determination of his not to extend that transition period beyond the end of 2020 but Ireland's been saying you know that well that doesn't necessarily mean that the EU is going to allow itself to be rushed on this imagine we get to June and actually it's the EU that decides we need more time what what would happen then? So yeah there's nothing saying that the UK has to be the one to request an extension to that transition. The EU could do so absolutely on the grounds that actually they don't particularly think negotiations have advanced fast enough that they need more time to uh, negotiate the detail because actually it's not a gentleman's agreement. You know, it, This is a legal and technical process. Um, it's hugely complicated. So yes, absolutely, they could request a transition. But if the UK says no, uh, there's not much the EU can we do anyway. mm. about that. You know, I think the EU have been very clear that they will do everything they can to reach an agreement. But given that this negotiation is going to be far more complicated because it covers so many more areas than withdrawal agreement, um, because there will be many more EU voices to the mix, you know, it's not just about what EU governments are prepared to accept. It's actually the European Parliament. You've got to think the European Parliament, new makeup of the European Parliament, incredibly fractured, mm. lots of new MEPs who are going to be standing up and saying, well, you know, I represent uh, a German car manufacturing, uh, you know, my constituency mm. has r- real preoccupations and concerns about this I need to be seen to stand up so I think the trick really will be to try and disentangle what all these EU people are saying um, and sort of you know is it just political is it that they have to say those things and where is that compromise Hmm. Um, and it's going to be very difficult in such a short span of time to figure that out. It's going to be quite fraught, isn't it? Jonathan, I mean, just in terms of the setting of this deadline, which Johnson has done for himself, I mean, mean, it's a Herculean task. Surely what it actually means is that the risk of some kind of sort of cliff edge exit next December really remains quite high. I mean, if I mean, if there's going to be any kind of deal done in the time available, there's going to have to be a, some fairly radical prioritising at, at, you know, at the very least. So first of all, I mean, how, how great is that risk? And secondly, what areas do you think Britain is going to want to focus on first? 
Well, the, the risk is extremely high. I presume that the UK will want to focus on goods and services. You know, services are obviously the lifeblood of the economy. But on the other hand, they've been ignored by the British government for the last four years. So who knows? And we also got extremely important aspects of security and defence, for example, which the government says it wants to be a part of, but doesn't really talk about very much. So really, that I don't think that prioritising has yet begun mm. in, in Whitehall. But we need to be absolutely clear about... The challenges when we talk about Canada, for example, which is you know obviously the the, the blueprint for what's about to happen. Um, so the Canada deal relates mainly to goods. Um, services are very limited, and there's certainly no freedom of goods even. Um, so obviously goods are checked. Um, other political issues such as security, the ones that I've just mentioned, are you know barely talked about at all, vastly inferior to anything offered by the EU. Certainly, mm-hmm. Canada that deal took seven years to negotiate. We're now talking about seven months. <laughs> so the, the the problem with the Canada. Well, the problem with this deal is that there is a hard deadline. The Canada deal could take seven years because it just needed seven years. And the other thing about the Canada deal and all other deals that EU struck is that either side could walk away and revert to a status quo ante, uh, which was WTO or the other agreements which were already in place, uh, which were not full trade agreements. And here this isn't the case. Exactly. So not only do we have a hard deadline, an entirely arbitrary, Mm. artificial Artificial. deadline, but there is no provision at the moment for any kind of status quo ante that we wouldn't feel Um, unless there are legal provisions uh, enacted for doing so, which Johnson has ruled out Mm. in this extension of the transition. So it's extremely unclear what it means when when von der Leyen, for example, says we need to prioritise, we're not going to get everything done by December. What does that mean for all the things that are left over? Mm. Kind of a legal blur at the moment, but that will need to become clear very, very quickly. Because it's not only about sort of goods, services, future migration, security, foreign policy, you know, participation in EU agencies, medicines, chemicals, Euratom, the banking authority, all of these things which no one talks about not particularly sexy Mm. issues many of them they will need to be hammered down while we're also having extremely complicated debates about Mm. um, goods and services the city of london etc and the most important thing really is that the only leverage we had in the previous three years was that we could cool the whole thing off and actually revert to a status quo ante, which is full membership of the EU. So if we think that we're in a weak position before, we ain't seen nothing yet because the EU can have absolutely all the leverage. And if we want to go away, that's it. Mm. The EU will lose a lot less than we will. Mm. I mean, very quickly on the prioritisation point, because I think it's right to acknowledge that actually this is going to be very complicated. So this deal might not cover all those Mm. areas that have been highlighted in the political declaration. But to a certain extent, it might be easier for the UK to decide what areas it would like to prioritise for the EU and this is why Michel Barnier is very clear that we do need prioritisation it's because it's a matter of disciplining member states as well you know not all member states have have an interest in fish not all member states have an interest in any other area so I think for the EU it's really important to push on prioritisation because they want to make sure that all member states agree because of course it's so complicated Mm. to um, uh, try and get everyone on board in the first place Jennifer do you agree with that how do you see the EU's priorities well, I think the, the EU has said it has priorities, but has never really spelled out what they are. So, and I agree with with what Jonathan was saying that there is a bit of murkiness on on what von der Leyen has said about what the EU's priorities really are. But I think more or less we can say that the EU 
wants clearly a, a, a trade agreement in goods that's underpinned by the so-called level playing field, all those conditions to make sure that the UK is not going to be handed an, an unfair advantage. And then in the mix with that is is fish. Again, we're going to be coming back time and time again to, to fishing quotas. For many EU member states, that is a real priority and they have explicitly linked it to the, the free trade agreements in goods. They see the two things going together. So I think all those, all those things will have to be worked out at quite an early stage. And then clearly another priority for the EU will be security as well. They're very keen to maintain a sort of deep relationship on internal and external security. My, my sense is probably the internal security will, will come first on trying to, to nail that down. But that points to also getting an agreement on, on data sharing as well, which I think could quickly take us into very complicated waters. Mm. Okay, we'll leave it there now for just for a minute. Come back to us after the break when we'll be looking at the dreaded question of regulatory divergence. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Brexit Means. I'm John Henley. Now, Georgina, the other huge obstacle for these talks beside the time frame that we've that we've just discussed is, of course, this question of regulatory divergence. Johnson is absolutely adamant that Britain's not going to align with EU standards. Von der Leyen has said that any zero tariff, zero quotas deal on goods is going to require UK alignment with EU environmental, labour, social, state aid rules. I mean, there doesn't appear on the face of it to be much room for wiggle room there, does there? I mean, you always expect at the start of a trade negotiation for both sides to say very clearly what they are prepared to accept and what they're not prepared to accept. The outcome could be very different because it's a matter of compromise. So I think that's really important to remember that this is expected at this point in the negotiations. But I think the EU have always been very clear that if the UK wanted generous access to its market, it would have to respect the EU's rules and meet those standards. So there is this question of striking the right you know, balance between rights and obligations. It's not fair. So some member states will say, well, it's not fair for UK businesses to be able to access the market in the mm. same way as our businesses if they don't meet the same rules. But I think on, on the question of regulatory alignment and divergence, I think the EU have always been sort of very clear that they understood that the UK would want to diverge. Otherwise, why would the UK vote to leave the single market and customs union? 
The real worry for the EU is how you manage that divergence. If the UK and the EU have different rules um, and that creates disruption to trade flows, how do you manage that? How do you prevent that from happening or how do you minimise uh, that disruption? disruption? And creating that architecture for those checks, etc., it's very complicated. Um, and also because the EU is conscious that whatever precedent it sets with the UK, other countries around the world might say, well, actually, we quite like that that setup. Can we mm. have the same? So there are, you know, broader questions for the EU. It's not just about its relationship with the UK, but also the way that it has, you know, manages trade with, with countries around mm. the world. To follow that, we do have uh, most favoured nation clauses in, in mm. modern trade agreements. And so anything that the EU was going to offer uh, the UK in addition to what it offered Canada, for example, it would have to replicate for Canada. With, with and so that is going to really hem the EU in into what mm. it, as to what it's prepared to offer the UK. And that's just another thing that we haven't really thought about that, very much. Interesting. Let's just look in a little bit more depth at a couple of the sort of the problem areas, namely fishing and financial services. Jonathan, just starting with you, fishing. You know, it's not particularly important for the UK at least economically, is it? But it's taken on this kind of significance all of its own politically. And the EU's latest slide presentation that we've, we've just seen makes clear you know, it's going to be absolutely crucial to any agreement. So, I mean, why, what explains this, this, this sort of this immense importance out of all proportion to its scale? I think we have to look at the roots of Brexit itself, which was nostalgic venture. And uh, when you look at the geographical and emotional landscape of our island nation, um, then that takes you not to cars, but to fish. You know, there are, you know, machinery is not romantic, fishing nets are. And so that's kind of where we are. That's when you talk about taking back control. It's, it's about romance. It's not about practicalities. It's certainly not about the economy. When we actually begin to look at it, Fisheries are so often seen by Remainers as being, okay, fine, we'll let you have fisheries, the one token advantage of Brexit, but it's actually not. We export the vast majority of the fish we catch. So the very first problem that we have is that if we're trying to restrict access to foreign boats well, fine, then they can restrict access to the fish that we sell. I mean, you can't manufacture markets in Britain for fish that people don't want to eat. Mm. And um, they could be very patriotic and start eating herring, but it's just not, it's unlikely to happen. <laughs> and so that's, that's the first thing. Now, outside the customs union, for example, you have rules of origin. Um, immediately. So that's that's going to uh, impact hugely, not only on fish, but on fish processing, which accounts for 75% of the industry. Mm. So even when we talk about fishing, which is a tiny proportion, only 25% of that is actual fishing mm. rather than fish processing. And then outside the single market, there are going to be border checks at Calais. That's something that we haven't spoken about for other goods, by the way, because you know Canada Canadian goods get checked, mm. so will British goods get checked when they go to France, and that's going to be a huge issue. And then you get to the issue of quotas. Now you can try to alter quotas, but fish do not not respect national yeah. boundaries. And so the, in, the, in the whole fishing, uh, the CFP, the Common Fisheries Policy, there's a debate about relative stability and zonal attachment. Now, we use something called relative stability at the moment, but zonal attachment um, would involve looking at where fish actually are. But the problem with that is that fish actually do move. move. And then the final issue about fishing is about allocations. That's the, the, the big kind of grievance that so many UK fishing communities have. Mm. But actually, that has always been done by the UK government not by the EU. And so we're going to find, as with so much else in Brexit, we're going to find that a lot of these problems that we thought we had, we're still going to have, and actually they're just going 
to get a lot worse. Brexit's because fundamentally, you can't keep the benefits without accepting compromises. Mm. Mm. Jennifer, yeah, no, so as Jonathan said, you know, that, I mean, that, I mean, hopes are very, very high on the British side around fishing and the British fishing industry who really want radical change from that common fisheries policy. But equally, you know, the large European fishing nations are insisting on their kind of historic, I mean, I mean, centuries old sometimes, right of access to UK waters. I mean, it doesn't feel like it's going to end well, this negotiation. I know it doesn't. I, I, a few months ago, I went out to uh, the, the near Ostend on the Belgian coast and, and met some fishermen there and, and they will... Um, talk about Belgian, but well, not not in those times Belgians, but they will talk about Flemish fishing boats plying their trade in the, in the North Sea since Tudor times. Mm. And I think the Danes go back even further and they, they maybe go back 700 years when they talk about uh, their their fishing uh, rights to in, in what are now uh, UK waters. And all of this were, was tied up in a big package when European politicians devised the, the common fisheries policy in the 1970s. So now trying to sort of unpick this is is just a huge sort of political and a technical headache of huge proportions. And I and I think the Europeans will insist very hard on on fish because there is so there is really something to lose for them because EU-based boats are currently mm. landing uh, eight times as much fish as British fishermen are, are getting from EU waters. So there is an imbalance there. And the EU have said that maintaining current quotas will be tied to having free trade in, mm. in goods. I mean, the, the, the two things are completely unrelated and, and British officials will say that's completely outrageous to make that kind of link. But that's that the is, link that exists that in politique. the EU uh, <laughs> papers on, on, on Brexit. And that's certainly the EU's opening position mm. so it's it's a hugely emotional issue and and so someone wise said to me that politicians never want to take on characters or, or professions who appear in children's stories whether that's fishermen or farmers or <laughs> or firemen and i think that's why it's, it's going to resonate for for everyone not just for for on the british side but on the on the yeah, EU that's side a very as well. nice point Georgina, moving on from fish to finance, um, which is economically much, much more important, particularly for for the UK. So, you know, basically to allow the City of London to continue functioning even remotely in the way that it now is, there's going to need to be by the end of June. So within the next sort of five months or so, the EU is going to have to unilaterally decide on on these so-called equivalences in something like 26 different areas in the financial services sector. I mean, is that going to happen? I mean, I, I guess the, sort of the question really is how important is the city's continued functioning to the EU27? Is that potentially a kind of a bargaining chip that Britain can use? I mean, everything becomes a bargaining chip. It's just like Jennifer said, you know, you can separate areas, but actually the EU has been very good in, in, in sort of trade agreements, trade negotiations to politicise some issues over others. So um, I think it's clear that the City of London is really important to the UK, but it's also very important to the EU. Mm. So there will be an attempt to find an arrangement, but it's not going to be the same arrangement as now. And that the EU have been absolutely clear on that. Um, And also they won't bend over backwards if it's not in their interest to do so. So I think the key question is, what is their interest when it comes to the City of London? Um, Murky again, we don't really know. Um, Those negotiations haven't started. We haven't seen the mandate. So it depends. And and it also depends how detailed that mandate is when the EU does publish its Mm. negotiating objectives. So it's not clear. And I think if you look at EU financial uh, rules and standards, a lot of them are informed by 
by global standards. So they will be shaped and informed by decisions that are made of global financial mm. institutions, where the UK um, is very powerful and very influential. So I think for the UK, it's not just about securing market access. It's also about what role can it play in those mm. global institutions, which is um, timely because uh, the Institute for Government is publishing a report ah! on how the UK can remain influential. So Excellent. look out for well, it. We shall look forward to that. Uh, Jonathan, fisheries, finance, let's look a little bit at industry now. Now, um, Ursula von der Leyen made it very clear that the kind of Brexit that Johnson seems at least at the moment to be envisaging, I mean, is necessarily going to mean some wholesale changes for British industry. I mean, like the car factories, pharmaceutical companies that rely on sort of just-in-time delivery, all this kind of stuff, because simply because there will have to be some kind of border checks and extra procedures that, are, that aren't there at the moment. Now, quite apart from what that means for those businesses, the domestic sort of political implications are quite interesting aren't they in in the sense that on the one hand you've got you know very brexity mps and hardliners for basically for whom this kind of regulatory divergence this non-alignment with the eu rules you know was basically the whole point of brexit and on the other hand you've got a whole bunch of new tory mps and and, and tory voters in constituencies that could be very very hard hit by th- this kind of change i mean how's that going to play out it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, like I was saying about the fisheries, um, the idea that you know our exit from the single market and customs union is going to necessitate some of the disruption that we used to talk about for No Deal, and we never really talked about it because we were focusing on the much more serious issue of No Deal. But even if we do have a deal, that will require checks, and that will require that will mean disruption, and so that's that's going to be one issue, and obviously that could have real ramifications for people certainly living in the southeast. But then there's a, a broader issue as well, certainly a political issue for Johnson about if he's prepared to shaft the people who've just voted for him, is he going to prioritise them? Or is he going to shaft them? And if he shafts them, is he going to assume, like he always does, that he'll get away with it? Mm. Because the evidence is, is quite <laughs> good, actually, yeah. that he does get away with it. And so, and that, that's a really uh, it's sort of important question because knowing Johnson, he'll try to have his cake and eat mm. it, which is that he'll try and appease the, the hard right of his party um, and he'll also try and wash his hands of any of the, the drawbacks and damage that emanates from those decisions. Because, you know, after the election, for example, we were saying, now Johnson... Johnson's free to pursue a softer Brexit, mm. and then those hopes were dashed quite quickly in a way with mm. the with the withdrawal agreement bill, which actually hardened a lot of mm. things up. And so, really, we just don't know how he's going how to play because he's such a mercurial character because he has no fundamental beliefs on anything he will simply do what he thinks is going to advance him, him exactly and so we don't know what he thinks will serve him and so really we're in we're in thrall to one man but i suppose there's one there's one idea that sort of remainers are clinging to if you like which is that if things do get bad, obviously we don't want things to get bad, mm. but if things do get bad, will the kind of the tide turn, will public opinion change? Or will it sort of be this a similar case to what we've seen over the last few years, which is that as the economy has kind of uh, begun to, to go down, um, as sort of you know, prices might have risen, people have in fact already lost their jobs, we've seen massive divestment mm. and sort of huge political chaos, people have not blamed Brexit. And that was like a, quite an interesting concerted attempt 
by the media to blame other things apart from Brexit. And so as we are seeing the real consequences of Brexit, is that still going to be the case, that there'll be a kind of a coalition of the right-wing media and the government to say, well, it wasn't us, it's, it's the EU, it's Remainers, it's, it's parliamentarians or whatever it is. And that's going to be the really difficult and interesting question for the next four years about mm. when things go bad, who is the public going to blame? Mm. Okay, Jennifer, are we going to start to see the similar kind of issues that that Jonathan was just talking about there in terms of sort of internal British uh, political consequences in the EU. I mean, in other words, are the EU 27 all equally concerned about maintaining level playing fields? You know, uh, will some be pushing for a more relaxed approach to, to the UK because of their own economic interests? Well, good, good that you raised that. Um, there were reports in the last few days quoting a senior UK source that that Merkel and Macron are the people mm. who care about the level playing field and others less so. And that was a statement that left me feeling incredulous, really, because, uh, of course, different EU member states have different economic interests when it comes to the UK. But but all that trade with the UK, you know, the, the Dutch, the Danes, the Belgians, the Irish, they all have their industries, too. They are all worried as well about the UK getting an unfair a competitive advantage. I mean, we often forget that we've been focused so much on the Irish border question that we forget that uh, Ireland also has other interests at stake when it comes to Brexit. And that's certainly having um, a competitor just across the border from them. So all these nations, especially those in the northwestern corner of, of the EU, are going to be pushing very hard on, on level playing field. And even for those that are, are further away, they will be at least hearing the case that it's very much in their interest as well because of the, the complexity of modern supply chains where you might have factories in, in Central Europe that are supplying, say, fabric that's then turned into something in Belgium mm. and exported to the UK. I think this level playing field issue is absolutely at the top of the EU agenda. And I don't see member states sort of at the moment sort of breaking away to to try and um, look for a softer deal for the UK and to compromise on, on this point. And the dynamic could well be different. It could well be harder for the, for the EU to maintain their unity. But I think at the moment it's an open question. And I don't see so far any governments putting their hands up and saying, no, we really need to give the UK a much softer deal that gives the UK an economic advantage. Georgina, just briefly, if you could. So the Institute for Government produced this report, but basically suggesting that, you know, that, that what we've been talking about for the last you know, better part of the last three years, namely, uh, you know, the border across the island of Ireland, customs arrangements for Northern Ireland, etc. You know, that essentially the, the technology for that was never, ever going to be ready in time. Is that like how how is that likely to impact on the, the, the talks themselves, do you think? I mean, there are two aspects to this. One is what happens to that border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Now, we know that work on that border must start immediately. But then there's the question, if Northern Ireland complies with more EU rules and mm. regulations than the rest of the UK, and there is divergence between, you know, GB and Northern Ireland, what happens to that border along the Irish Sea? And for that, I think um, the Brexit deal is very, very clear. That responsibility of implementing those provisions falls entirely on the UK government. 
Hmm. Um, and so the EU will be looking at that very closely. How can you ensure that goods um, coming from GB into Northern Ireland, if those goods don't meet EU standards, how can you make sure that they don't actually cross over that Northern mm. Ireland and, and Republic border and make it into, in their way into the EU market? There are lots of questions around checks, around VAT, how you monitor it, and whether or not we have that border infrastructure and can mm. it be put in place by the end of the, mm. of the year. I mean, Jennifer, just, just sort of slightly relevant to that, really, um, there's this very interesting report, EU report, on the British sort of actions as regards this sort of Schengen database and these accusations that the UK has been behaving like a, like a cowboy. How much of an issue is trust likely to be in these talks over the next few months? I think it will be really pivotal to the the, the outcome of the talks on the future relationship. And, uh, and what this report highlighted, it's really just come into the open in the last few days, although the report itself was actually written more than 18 months ago by EU officials. And it was based on their findings uh, to the UK and examination of um, airports and, and ports and, and borders. And their assessment was that UK authorities had not been pulling their weight when it came to doing their bit to help the rest of the EU. So, for example, UK police and, and border officers have been allowing potential criminals just to return to other EU member states rather than uh, stopping them for questioning. And they'd only been really searching for people that UK authorities wanted to speak to or wanted to detain rather than those that other police forces were interested in. And I think that was the most damaging revelation of all. And that certainly caused a lot of anger in the European Parliament, who will almost certainly have any say on any future data sharing agreement with the UK. So it it does all come back to trust. And I think these kind of these kind of issues can be corrosive. But on the other hand, the UK is a big security force when it comes to domestic security, as, as well as also having a, one of the biggest armies in, in the EU. So I think, I mean, the two things will sort of be weighed against each other. And I think you'll still find many EU governments wanting to keep the UK close, albeit sometimes you, you will hear sort of grudging um, criticism of the UK that they're not doing everything that they could do to keep the rest of the EU safe. So I think these kind of accusations could really be very damaging, but remains to be seen how much of an impact they will actually have on the future negotiations. Very briefly, Jonathan, um, what's your instinct? Does it, all of what we've been talking about now for the, sort of the last 40 minutes or so, does, does this mean we're basically heading for some kind of very low ambition, low alignment deal simply because the British government isn't going to want those to make those trade-offs? I think we have to work backwards. Um, Johnson is not going to extend the transition because uh, I, I think that he doesn't have, he, he has the power not to. And in return, that means that he's going to play his cakeism game again, which is to try and advertise a very hard Brexit and maybe try mm. uh, and basically sort of capitulate to the EU just as May did. So the EU will make all kinds of demands about level playing fields. I suspect that he will try and accept as much of those as he can, lie to his backbenchers about what that is and try and get the media to sell this as great the great liberation where actually is going to make us a satellite state i don't see that he has many options okay right uh, now the now traditional crystal ball gazing exercise very very briefly um final round assuming we are at which i'm sure we all do we are now out on the 31st of january what is the first real point of conflict in these future relationship talks do you think and how soon are we going to hit it georgina 
I've always thought that the first couple of months we won't hear anything really. There'll be lots of positive love bombing, positivity, um, and actually, and lots of chest beating as well. Um, sort of where I'm going to fight for my interests. I'm going to make sure that you know the final deal is a good one. Um, and I suspect we won't really hear. Uh, of where we stand until June or July. The last point I'd make very briefly is I suspect as well it will be very difficult to know what's going on in the negotiations. And mm. actually that's a, that's a good thing. You want negotiations, you know, you, of course you need to, uh, businesses to be prepared, you need the public to have a general sense of where it's going and parliament and debates and scrutiny. But you also need to give negotiators that space, space. To, to, to be able to talk. So it will be difficult to know what's happening. Um, I just don't know. Okay, Jonathan, any ideas? Well, I suppose you might you might just have a lot of leaks uh, when it suits the different parties like we had in the in the mm. first phase. But I suspect that the first the first uh, conflict will be will be sequencing, much like in mm. in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen, um, when uh, the two sides will put forward their priorities. We have such a limited time, and they'll argue about which to follow. But of course, the UK will have, as we say, even less leverage than before because it's staring down the barrel of that December deadline, mm. and there's nothing it can do about it. Mm. Jennifer. I think the, the first conflict will come in June. The, the hope to get an agreement on fisheries uh, before the 1st of July. And I, so I think the, the first big row will be about fish. Excellent. Right. Well, we shall all look forward to that. Uh, my thanks now to Jonathan, Georgina and Jennifer. Brexit means we'll be back in a little over four weeks time. In the meantime, please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. And if you haven't had enough politics talk, do tune into our sister pod, Politics Weekly, tomorrow, when Heather Stewart and the panel will look at the reopening of the Northern Ireland Assembly and the latest in the Labour leadership campaign. Until next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Danielle Stevens. This was Brexit Means. And thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.